The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you're not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and before we start today's show, I would like to thank Jerry for her recent donation. If you are able to help support the show, please go to achshow.com and click on the banner at the top or scroll down on the right-hand side and uh, have a look at uh, one of the books that I offer. Today is Thursday, so I'm delighted to welcome back my co-host and dear friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And folks, uh, you'll be aware of the situation with Dave Kahari. I talked about it on Monday's show. I talked about it on the show with Dr. David Duke uh, on Tuesday. Uh, and I've been told he is improving, much to the doctor's surprise. And uh, the difference is, is that we've asked for prayers from you on both Monday's show on ACH and Tuesday's show with Dr. David Duke on davidduke.com. So if you are, if you have the faith, then please pray because it is helping. And on that basis, I've asked Peter if he will pray today and start the show out with prayer. So Peter, over to you. Thank you so much. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that at all times we can turn to you for grace, for strength, for mercy, for wisdom. And we lift up Dave Gahari. We Pray, Lord God, for your healing hand to be upon him, for you, Lord God, to restore him, body, mind, and spirit, and that, Lord, you would meet his physical need for healing and restoration of his body, and also that you'd do a wonderful work in his heart and mind and soul. Lord, bring him closer to you, strengthen him for the fight, make him able to serve your cause in the fight to know the truth which will set us free, for we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Peter. And folks, uh, today we're going to continue our series, The Real Story Behind the Bad War by M.S. King. This is part four. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today with this? Well, we're in our fourth section, and we in 1933, the beginning of 1993. So this is so helpful, having M.S. King's the Bad War, The Truth Never Taught About World War II, where he gives an overview on the context. And it's just so important to understand the context. Everything happens for a reason, and there's no major action without a, a big cause. And, of course, every cause has a reaction, and, and so it carries on. So understanding 
the massive chaos caused by the First World War and the collapse of the Russian Empire, the German Empire, the Austrian Empire, the whole stability in Central and Eastern Europe has been undermined with phenomenal communist gains in, the, in Russia and what they at this point are calling the Soviet Union. And in Germany, the Communist Party received a full 20% of the votes in 1932. And so there were two parliamentary elections in 1933, no clear majority. And uh, in this situation with, with assassinations, with uh, Bolshevik revolution attempts to export the Bolshevik revolution all over the world with violence in many places and with the Weimar Republic tottering on the edge. Uh, although the National Socialist German Workers' Party, the NSDAP, did not have a total majority, they were a, a major party, they were one of the biggest parties in the country, even though they were short of a complete majority. So President Hindenburg, or Field Marshal Hindenburg, the hero of the Battle of Tannenberg, hero of the Eastern Front in the First World War, he's the president of Germany at this stage, and he turns to Adolf Hitler and asks him to form a government, obviously a coalition government, because there's no clear majority, uh, but his fear is of the threat from the communists and the socialist parties, which are exploiting the chaos and are attempting to bring revolution, as in a Bolshevik revolution to Germany. So this is the context in January 1933, when Adolf Hitler is given limited powers. He's chancellor, but remember, there's also a president, and he does not have full executive powers at all, and he's in a coalition government. But they have the upper hand in a very unstable government. But at this point, the communist trade union leaders moved quickly to destabilize Hitler and Germany and caused for massive strikes. And in the United States, the Zionist um, Schulzberger-owned New York Times kicked off an anti-German campaign on the front page January the 31st, 1933. And uh, Zionist Scharnhoff's National Broadcasting Corporation, NBC, and also the CBS, which is under Pele or Palov, who is also Zionist, they all declare war on Germany and call for a complete boycott of German goods. And so uh, four weeks after Adolf Hitler has been appointed as chancellor, communists set the Reichstag or the German parliament building on fire. And the local police caught a Dutch communist, uh, Marinus van den Lubbe, on the premises. He had just arrived in Germany a few weeks before. And there was no doubt that the fire was to be the start of a Bolshevik-instigated civil war aimed at toppling the crumbling Weimar state before the NSDAP could establish themselves. Well, President Hindenburg and Adolf Hitler acted fast. Emergency decrees were issued. Communist leaders were rounded up. The Red Revolution backfired. And instead of plunging Germany into civil war, there was a chain of events that led from this Reichstag fire uh, which led to the Enabling Act and consolidation of power and emergency powers. And the NSDAP became Germany's overwhelmingly supported party in the next election. The Third Reich was established and Adolf Hitler started to be called the Führer, the leader rather than the Chancellor. Now, some modern historians promote the theory that the NSDAP actually started the fire themselves and blamed the communists for it. But while it's a convenient theory, there is no evidence for it. And there are English journalists who are on the scene at the time who are absolutely convinced, seeing the absolute shock of, for example, Hermann Goering and others, they were convinced that this was a great morale blow uh, to the Germans, to the nationalists, uh, to 
Hitler and Goering and all of his people there. Uh, this is the premier building the seat of government in Germany being burned, uh, not just a little fire, it actually destroyed the Reichstag. And so uh, the, the evidence is that the communists did start the fire and it's consistent with what the communists do and have done. So although the Reichstag fire has often been used as a byword for a false flag, this is one that was not a false flag on the balance of the evidence. Well, interestingly, the same month that Alf Hitler was given power in Germany in March 1933, uh, so Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or FDR, uh, defeated President Hoover in the elections and became uh, President of the United States in March of 1933. In those days, it took longer between the elections in November the year before and the handover of power, obviously before the same kind of modern transport. Uh, there was longer uh, uh, delay before taking office, whereas these days American presidents come to power in um, January, really. But FDR came to power in March 1933. And he moved quickly to make America into a welfare state. He called it the New Deal. And it was to take place in 100 days, famously. Well, Franklin Delano Roosevelt used the economic crisis, which was created by his handlers, as the pretext for the expansion of government power, ignoring the fact that it was the Federal Reserve's artificial manipulation of the currency and stocks that caused the crisis, not the free market, which was blamed for decades. But as even the Federal Reserve Bank admits today, yes, it's true, the Federal Reserve Bank did cause the Wall Street crash, uh, the collapse, the economic disaster, which propelled FDR to power and enabled him to bring in this massive socialist New Deal, which was a colossal failure. FDR's reckless spending, high taxes, ballooning deficits just prolonged the depression and led to even more expensive schemes, exactly what the globalist feds wanted. And so the banksters were very happy with what FDR was doing. He was their man the debt-driven economic calamity that the United States was heading towards uh, has its roots in FDR's fundamental transformation of the American Republic into a perpetual welfare and warfare state. Welfare and warfare apparently go together. And so this uh, grinning FDR with his cigar, uh, always a propelled or cigarette on cigarette holder, uh, stuck between his teeth as part of his grin, uh, he was a real warmonger, and uh, he was, and there's pictures in the book of him with Bernard Baruch, uh, who was the most powerful of the New York uh, financiers, banksters. So interestingly, March 1933, both FDR and Hitler come to power, and both of them institute new sweeping changes. And uh, uh, Hitler's first 100 days in office were also marked by a flurry of determined activity. Both of them inherited economic disasters, but that's where the similarities end. Whereas FDR was implementing all of what the bankers, the banksters, the globalists wanted in economics and foreign policy, Hitler was against the globalists. So in one real sense, FDR was a globalist, Adolf Hitler was a nationalist, FDR was uh, on the side of the banks and funded by the banks and guarded by the banks, whereas Adolf Hitler was waging war against the bankers. And uh, whereas uh, FDR had international totalitarian goals uh, for a new world order, Adolf Hitler was only really concerned with his own country and his people. So Adolf Hitler managed to pull Germany out of the globalist League of Nations. He banned the Communist Party, arrested its leaders, replaced the Marxist trade unions with company unions, implemented the strength through joy, 
vacation program that provided luxury vacations for the common workers, uh, something that was unheard of anywhere in the world before that time. He established the NSDAP as Germany's only political party. He ended reparations payments from the Versailles Treaty and the Dawes Plan, said enough already. He took control of Germany's Reichsbank and issued debt-free currency, so there's no more built-in inflation by paying massive uh, interests to the bankers for their own money. Uh, took control of uh, the media to a large extent, restricted the Jewish ownership of newspapers and radio, cut taxes, provided massive incentives for mothers to stay home and raise their children. So, for example, one of the most pro-family, pro-life policies ever, uh, interesting that he's accused of um, promoting abortion when he actually banned abortion for the German people. And uh, in the uh, economics, when a couple was married, they were given a 1,000 mark loan. Now, 1,000 marks was enough money to buy a semi-detached house, uh, a, a decent home uh, for a newly wed couple. But for every child born, one quarter of their debt would be forgiven. In other words, 250 marks would be cut off uh, what they owed um, for every child born. So once they had four children, they would have the home debt free. So this is a real incentive for people to get married and to have children. And he made sure that the taxes were low enough so that mothers could stay at home and raise their children. And you only need one income uh, earner in a family, and that's the, that's the father. In fact, even during the, the most intense times of the war, uh, Albert Speer uh, wrote in his um, biography how he was arguing most with Adolf Hitler that he must um, conscript the mothers, the, the housewives and homemakers, uh, into the factories, and that this would uh, free up millions more men uh, from factories to be put in uniform and go and fight on the on the front. And uh, that uh, why do we have millions of, of mothers who are not economically involved? Because the British and the Americans have been conscripting all the women into the factories and working uh, whether on the land or in, in the factories to enable every man possible to be in the front in uniform in their armies. Uh, but Germany is not waging total war. Germany is still letting uh, mothers stay at home. And Adolf Hitler would not relent on this. And Albert Speer was most distressed and said that one reason Germany lost the war was by not mobilizing the mothers from the homes into the factories. But just interesting to see uh, the very strong pro-family um, principle which Adolf Hitler enforced that no, mothers must be in the home raising the children. They're not to be mobilized into the factories. So he also relaxed the strict gun control laws, which the Weimar Republic had. That's intriguing because um, there are many pro-firearm people, pro-Second Amendment people who say Adolf Hitler instituted strict gun control. Well, actually, he relaxed the gun control regulations dramatically from the Weimar Republic. So that's actually not accurate uh, when um, he is put forward as a pro-abortion and pro a gun control person, it might suit them a narrative, but it's not uh, accurate. He also rebuilt German infrastructure dramatically by getting the millions of unemployed, there were over 6 million unemployed Germans in 1933. He mobilized them into building the Autobahn system and bridges and infrastructure was rebuilt and main, uh, managed to achieve 100% employment, which was just phenomenal. So the globalists had lost control of Germany. Germany was now a nationalist country. 
and Adolf Hitler was becoming a living legend, even on the front page of Time magazine. There's these pictures of people all over enthusiastically, excitedly acclaiming him. Why? Because he had brought them out of the depression and out of unemployment and stood up to the bankers and said no to the Versailles Treaty uh, debt repayment, uh, which was no debt at all. It was paying for all sides of the First World War. In response, on March 23rd, 20,000 Jewish people protested at New York City Hall. There were rallies and boycotts directed against all German manufactured goods and exports. And the front page of the 24th of March, London Daily Express carried the bold headline, Judea declares war on Germany. And these Jewish leaders were calling for what they called a holy war against Germany. Quote, the Jewish wholesaler will quit his house, the banker's stock exchange, the merchant his business, the beggar his humble hut, in order to join the holy war against Hitler and his people. Germany is now confronted with an international boycott of all of its trade, its finances, and its industry. And they believed that as Zionists, they had the ability to enforce an international boycott of all trade, finances, and industries. And on 27th of March, 1933, another 40,000 Jews and, and many communists gathered in Madison Square. Madison Square Gardens protesting against the new Chancellor of Germany, the New York Daily News. Front page bled, 40,000 raw protests here against Hitler. And there are uh, pictures of these newspaper headlines uh, in the book documenting all this. And uh, sanctions war, boycott German industry, don't buy German goods and uh, uh, cars driving around with these signs on them and so on. So interesting, they declared war in Germany. And the Washington Post uh, actually went bankrupt during the Great Depression. And uh, the owner, Ned McLean, unloaded the Washington Post at a bankruptcy auction. And it was bought up by Federal Reserve Chairman Eugene Meyer, who's a Zionist. And having just stepped down from the Federal Reserve, Meyer immediately changed the Washington Post editorial policy, transformed this very influential newspaper into a pro-FDR, pro-Joseph Stalin, pro-Soviet Union, anti-Germany propaganda sheet. And in 1940, Meyer fired the Post's pacifist editor for refusing to endorse America's intervention in World War II as a major supplier of weapons to belligerents uh, long before America got involved herself. The Washington Post would lose money for 20 more years, but Meyer didn't care. He bought the Post for influence, not for profit. And the Washington Post would later be handed down to Meyer's daughter, the late Catherine Meyer Graham. So with tension between the international Jews and Germany building, it's essential to note that the four most powerful media sources in America were now under Zionist ownership. And that was CBS under Pelly, NBC under Sarnoff, New York Times under Osk Sorzenberg, and the Washington Post under Mayer. So they managed to have a clean sweep. They had the big four, the big four media giants, all the major media giants in America, CBS, NBC, New York Times, Washington Post, all rock solid on the globalist agenda, supporting the banksters, declaring war on the nationalists, and seeking to further the globalist agenda very pro-Stalin as well. So here's a forbidden quote in history from Count Potocki leaving the White House. Count Jerzy Potocki, the Polish ambassador to America, said, 
Above all, propaganda here in America is entirely in Jewish hands. When bearing public in ignorance in mind, their propaganda is so effective that the American people have no real knowledge of the true state of affairs in Europe. President Roosevelt has been given the power to create huge reserves and armaments for a future war, which the Jews are deliberately heading for. And you'll never guess when that was written, 1934. Literally five years before the war, uh, Count Pataki says President Roosevelt's building huge reserves and armaments for a future war, which the Jews are deliberately heading for in Europe. Incredible. Well, in November 1933, Franklin Delano Roosevelt shocked the world by granting diplomatic recognition to the Soviet Union. Now, ever since the Bolsheviks seized control in Russia, three consecutive American presidents, all Republicans, refused to recognize the criminal regime in Moscow. So apart from its genocidal actions towards its own captive people, uh, the Holodomor, the starving of the Ukrainian people, millions of people, over 10 million people dying of starvation in a deliberate famine where the NKVD was literally taking the people's food, burning the food, burning the crops, burning the fields, burning the farmhouses, burning the warehouses, murdering the people, massacring the people. And uh, during this time uh, where the world knew about the horrors of what was going on in the Soviet Union, the United States of America gives official diplomatic recognition of the political commissars uh, who are the dictators over, the, over Russia. And so uh, aside from that, the Communist International, the Comintern, is openly stating that their goal is to overthrow every bourgeois government in the world, including America's most prominently. So ignoring these revolutionary realities and these genocidal uh, crimes against humanity committed by the Soviet Union, to please its globalist ma masters, FDR reverses America's consistent policy and normalizes relations to the great benefit of the Soviet Union, helping Joseph Stalin no end and helping international communism to grow even stronger. And so as Hitler's Germany continues to be vilified for imaginary offenses, um, King says the real crimes of Stalin and Kaganovich are being ignored by the media. And so this is strange because at this point, um, Adolf Hitler has killed nobody, actually. Uh, but that changes. Uh, so Stalin's killed tens of millions already. Uh, but uh, the media is totally for Stalin and totally against Hitler. Well, Adolf Hitler starts to get blood in his hands on June the 30th, 1934, the night of the long knives. And so more than a year into Hitler's rule, the nationalist and Marxist and homosexual Ernst Röhm is threatening a second revolution to redistribute wealth. Now, Ernst Röhm is commander of the Brown Shirts, the SA, the stormtroopers, and his members uh, have a reputation for street violence. Now, they come into being to protect people uh, who are wanting to attend other than communist meetings because the communist thugs were breaking up any political meeting of any political party that was not communist and socialist. And so uh, the SA did an important job as protecting people who wanted to attend other political parties and protecting political freedom effectively and freedom of movements and so on. But now it's quite clear this man is actually a homosexual. Uh, he's actually got Marxist, very strong Marxist tendencies, and he's talking about a second revolution. Well, the German military and the German business executives are horrified 
and approach Adolf Hitler and say, you've got to do something about this. And Adolf Hitler launches what he calls Operation Hummingbird. And this was the purge of Rom's out of control left wing faction, the SA or the stormtroopers, otherwise known as the Brownshirts. And Adolf Hitler shows a ruthless streak here. He personally goes down to Bavaria and um, the word has it that he actually personally executed Ernst Rom after giving him the chance to commit suicide, leaving a loaded revolver um, in a room alone that he could do it. When he did not, he was actually put out. Now, uh, one of the uh, reports is that Adolf Hitler did it personally. He wasn't just somebody who ordered people there. He went down and Ernst Rom was one of his comrades from the trenches uh, in the First World War. And so this actually shocked people. See, goodness me, this artist, this painter from Austria, um, actually has quite a ruthless streak. He's known to be someone who loves animals. He's a vegetarian. He's a teetotaler. He never smokes. Uh, the man lives a very clean, moral, upright lifestyle. And uh, uh, he is loved by the people. And now suddenly it can be seen there is a ruthless streak in him. He's able to be extremely decisive. And the brown shirts were massive. They were a couple of million. In, uh, they were they way outnumbered the German army and the police and all that combined. And so there's a major political threat, which he decapitated with very decisive action. But we're talking about a couple of dozen executions, effectively, of the top leadership of Ernst Strom's SA or brown shirt uh, brought an end to it. So at the beginning of the Second World War, Adolf Hitler and his regime had the blood of maybe 100, no more than 120 people would have been killed by them uh, in the Night of the Long Knives and all other um, Kristallnacht and all the other things combined. So interesting, Stalin is a wonderful, tremendous person, Uncle Joe, even though he killed tens of millions. But uh, Adolf Hitler beyond the pale because he was responsible for something in the region of about 100 deaths. Uh, by 1939. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. At this point, May 1935, there's a sudden death of the Polish Marshal Pilsudski. Pilsudski was actually on very good terms with Germany. And in fact, Polish leader Marshal Joseph Pilsudski um, had uh, signed a peace treaty, a non-aggression pact between Germany and Poland, just um, uh, 10 months after Hitler won the elections in 1933. And so the Polish Communist Party had denounced Pilsudski as a fascist and a capitalist and a militarist and all the rest of it. Well, according to the non-aggression pact between Poland and Germany, both countries pledged to resolve any problems through negotiations, not armed conflict. And before his death, Pilsudski re-emphasized Poland must maintain good relations with their neighbor to the West, Germany. And the popular marshal would be succeeded by the pompous warmonger, to quote my king, Marshal Edward Rydz-Smigli. And Pilsudski's death and Smigli's rise proved to be catastrophic, not just for Poland and Germany, but for the world. Um, and facts which Hitler would reiterate during the closing weeks of World War II. So that was very bad news. 12th of May, 1935, Marshal Sudski, the leader of Poland, died and was replaced by someone with more globalist tendencies. Well, uh, you can see Adolf Hitler attending a Berlin memorial service in honor of Pilsudski, who he respected greatly. There's pictures of that uh, in uh, the book and uh, all well documented. 
November 1935, Winston Churchill actually praised Hitler, then dropped a poison pill. By November of 1935, it had been clear to the world that anti-German atrocity stories were baseless. The Jewish boycott effort had actually failed. Germany was, in fact, trading by a barter system so that, for example, Germany would provide Argentina with VW uh, Beetle uh, motor vehicles and Argentina would provide Germany with beef and, and so on. So without going through the bankers and without using the dollar, uh, they were having a very roaring trade all over the world now uh, by sending manufactured goods to get the raw materials they needed uh, in a, a trade in, in a basic barter system without having to involve the banksters. So Germany had renounced any claims to the disputed Alsace-Lorraine region of France to maintain good relations with France. And the rapid economic social recovery of Germany was stunning and self-evident, and people were astounded. While America was still floundering in depression, Germany had come out of depression fast and now had full employment. Monarchists were praising Hitler, prime ministers, politicians, clergymen, artists, poets from all over Europe were publicly singing the praise of the Fuhrer for this economic miracle and even many Americans had come to admire him from afar, despite the media. And therefore, in order for the globalist warmongers to impose a second war against Germany, they had to reboot the hate campaign. But they needed to do it gradually because Adolf Hitler was so popular at this stage that they couldn't move too fast. And to that end, Winston Churchill penned an article for Strand Magazine entitled The Truth About Adolf Hitler. And we have a picture of it in the book, too. And so as not to sound like a raving, war-mongering lunatic that uh, he actually was, Churchill appeared to appear objective, making remarkable concessions, saying, one may dislike Adolf Hitler's system and yet admire his patriotic achievements. If our country were defeated, I hope we should find a champion as indomitable to restore our courage and lead us back to our place amongst the nations as Adolf Hitler. But further down the article, this objective Hitler now dropped the other shoe by suggesting Germany may possibly yet turn out to be a threat to world peace. There was no reason to assume that at that stage, but he said, we cannot tell whether Hitler will be the man who will once again let loose upon the world another war in which civilization will irretrievably succumb, or whether he will go down history as the man who restored honor and peace of mind to the great Germanic nation and brought them back serene and helpful and strong to the European family circle. It is on this mystery of the future that history will pronounce Hitler either as a monster or a hero. It is this which will determine whether he will rank in Valhalla with Pericles, with Augustus, and with Washington, or welter in the inferno of human scorn with Attila and Tamerlane. It is enough to say that both possibilities are open at the present moment. So this is in a Strand magazine, November 1935, article written by none other than Winston Churchill. Well, the German press, the foreign ministry were quick to express displeasure with Churchill's underhand, baseless speculation, comparing Adolf Hitler to genocidal maniacs like the Mongol leader Attila and Tamerlane. But Churchill's anti-German hate campaign was just getting started as he was rising to political influence. And uh, bear in mind that Winston Churchill had been the one behind Gallipoli uh, and uh, the Lusitania sinking and all the rest of it. So, February the 4th, 1936, Willem Gustloff uh, is murdered. Now, Willem Gustloff was the founder of the Swiss branch of the NSDAP, 
1932. Well, a Jewish student called David Frankfurter, heeding the world's call for a Jewish holy war against the German people, visited Gustloff's home in Switzerland, and Hedvig Gustloff showed the killer into the study, asking him to wait while her husband was on telephone. When Gustloff came to meet his unexpected guest, David Frankfurter, Frankfurter drew a pistol and shot him five times. And Hedvig, the wife of the murdered Willem Gustloff, screamed and cried. Uh, German and Swiss German were outraged at the murder. And Hitler attended Gustloff's funeral. And then he named a luxury ship christened by his widow in Gustloff's honor, the Willem Gustloff, uh, which was a phenomenal ship, uh, very much akin to the Titanic in terms of its luxury, but was all designed for the poor people. Well, the Swiss sentenced Frankfurter to 18 years in prison, but he was pardoned at the end of World War II, inexplicably. Then he moved to Israel, and in 1945, on what would have been Gustloff's 50th birthday, the ship named after him made history by being the greatest sea disaster ever when it was sunk by Soviet Russian torpedoes, four torpedoes, and over 9,000 people, mostly civilians, men, women, children, um, killed in ICCs in the worst sea disaster in history, but most people have never heard of the Willem Gustloff. Well, Willem Gustloff, shocking to think that uh, his murderer was allowed to live out the rest of his life in Israel and that he served only a few years in prison effectively for murder, cold-blooded murder. In 1933 to 1936, the German recovery was a miracle. It was the most stunning economic revival in world history. And while the world remained mired in Great Depression, Germany's once dead economy was booming. Unemployment, which had been over 30% a few years before, was now under 5%. Productivity was sky high. Wages were higher than ever before. Germany was freed from the heavy taxation of the Weimar Republic and the cruel burden of the Versailles Treaty and the perpetual interest cost of the Weimar debt-based central bank currency. So Hitler had unleashed the private economy while using public spending very wisely and restrainedly. Unlike Franklin Delano Roosevelt's wasteful public works programs, Hitler's public works programs are all useful investments, like the national highway system, the autobahn, which led to freeways and highways worldwide. He, he's a great pioneer of that. And Hitler was a great admirer of Henry Ford. And he sketched the original prototype for the Volkswagen, the People's Wagon, what we often call the Beetle, uh, which, like the Herbie films, uh, had uh, the Beetle. Uh, he suggested Ferdinand Porsche that it would have to be in the shape of a June bug. And he wanted every German family to be able to afford a car and take vacations as a family in this car. So low taxes, responsible debt management, intelligent planning, lean government, debt-free currency, a business-friendly environment. These were the secrets of this economic miracle and of the extraordinary popularity of the Fuhrer amongst a very grateful German people, including a lot of former liberals, many who previously had voted for the communists were now moving over to support the nationalists, saying, actually, they are achieving what the communists only promise, which is full economy and uh, much better working conditions for the people and all the rest. So along with this economic revival, the reborn German experienced a cultural and moral rebirth. And the NSDAP, whose membership is open to all Germans who have sound character, cleaned up the pornography and debauchery which had thrived under the Weimar Republic. They got rid of the brothels and the sexually oriented businesses in Berlin 
and outlawed prostitution and all the rest of it and got rid of the porn and classic art made a comeback. Modern art was relegated to an object of ridicule and the future was looking bright for Germany. The classics were up, the concerts were up, the operas were doing well. And before this German model could spread to the world, um, the new world order was determined to destroy it. So by 1936, support for Hitler in Germany was almost universal. Even his former enemies, pro-Marxist liberals, had been won over by the achievements. And the photographs published in this book prove it. Happy people, uh, tremendously uh, joyful people surrounding Hitler, uh, children, uh, the scouts and many others, and uh, pictures you don't normally see. And he also contrasts with a few pictures of some of the debauched cabaret type of life, transgenderism and so on, that uh, uh, was the hallmark of Weimar Republic before Berlin got cleaned up and the pimps were um, shown the door and sent away and who fled uh, justice. And so in February 1936, in an interview with the London Daily Mirror, Hitler offered friendship to the world, saying, I appeal to reason in international affairs. I want to show that the idea of eternal enmity is wrong. We're not hereditary enemies. And of course, throughout his life, he was determined that the English people and the German people having a common ancestry, being Anglo-Saxons, should actually be friends and allies, not enemies. And the images of Hitler shown by the Western yellow press of his day and the modern history books and TV documents are very careful not to show the smiling Hitler, which my king puts. He puts a lot of pictures of Adolf Hitler with obviously good rapport uh, with children and animals and with women and adoring crowds. And the fact is he had a soft heart and a warm fondness for children. And uh, the fact that he is a vegetarian and a clean living person who didn't touch alcohol or drink is uh, something that just doesn't fit the image of the worst monster mass murderer and genocidal maniac in the history of the world, which is pretty standard fare in today's media. And so uh, here's a quote from David Lloyd George, the British prime minister during the First World War. So David Lloyd George in 1936 stated this, it is not the Germany of the decade that followed the war, broken, dejected, and bowed down with a sense of apprehension and impotence. Germany is now full of hope and confidence and of a renewed sense of determination to lead its own life without interference from any influence outside of its own frontiers. One man has accomplished all this, this miracle. He is a born leader of men, a magnetic, dynamic personality with a single-minded purpose, a resolute will, and a dauntless heart. As to his popularity, there can be no manner of doubt. The old trust him, the young idolize him. It is not the admiration accorded to a popular leader. It's a worship of a national hero who has saved his country from utter despondence and degradation. I've never met a happier people than the Germans. Now that from David Lloyd George, who is one of the architects of the Versailles Treaty, one of Germany's great enemies in the First World War, David Lloyd George praising Adolf Hitler. And David Lloyd George was not a nationalist either. He's quite a socialist. So very interesting. These are quotes that uh, you're not meant to remember, apparently. So 1936, the New York Times accuses Germany of a Holocaust. And this is kind of interesting. Uh, long before um, any Jews were interned in any camps, uh, years five years before uh, that, uh, here comes out this incredible, um, uh, bizarre accusation of Holocaust, May 1936 in New York Times. 
And even the legendary Max Warburg, um, even though he uh, no longer controlled Germany's central bank, still chose to stand Germany till 1938. And a group of Christians fronting for the Chicago and New York Zionists now makes the ridiculous claim of a European Holocaust, and this forms the basis for a case for establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine, which the British had conquered as part of their World War I payoff to the Zionists for the help in convincing America to come into the First World War on their side. So not content with mass immigration to Palestine under the British, which, which was happening, the Zionists were now trying to get Christian frontmen to order the British to clamp down on the oppressed Arabs and give the Jews actual control of a nation where they were the minority and where the Arabs were still a majority. And so the New York Times reported on this allegation, 30th of May, 1936, a petition addressed to Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin, expressive of the hope that Great Britain will store a course favoring the establishment of a free Jewish nation in Palestine such as would provide refuge for millions of persecuted Jews in Eastern Europe and Germany, was presented to Sir Ronald Lindsay, British ambassador today by a Christian delegation, representing the pro-Palestine Federation of America. The petition stressed the intolerable sufferings of millions of Jews in this European Holocaust. What? That's a bit overzealous, a bit off script, five years too soon. But anyway, uh, just like it's been mentioned all the way through from 1900, first accusing the Tsar of this, uh, you see um, the same nonsense coming out of American press. Well, August 1936, the Berlin Olympics, one of the greatest Olympics ever held. If you haven't seen uh, the film on the Berlin Olympics, uh, 1936 Olympics, um, uh, you need to see it. Uh, Lenny Riefenthal's film is, is a real classic and won a lot of awards for its innovative uh, camera techniques. Well, Germany had been awarded the Olympics long before Hitler became chancellor. So despite protests of Jewish groups too late to take the games away, the Olympic Games now showcased the new Germany, and the visitors were very impressed at the spirit, the positive outlook of the German people, and the phenomenal lifestyle, the high stands, the first Olympics filmed on television, color no less, and uh, the amazing uh, amounts of high standards uh, in Germany, and Germany won more medals than any other nation. But um, the uh, propaganda tried to make it out that uh, this whole thing was ruined by Jesse Owens, a black American athlete, um, winning um, the gold at um, in running and long jumping. And uh, they tried to make it out that uh, Hitler was furious and stormed out. And that's just not true. In fact, that's a complete myth. And uh, uh, Mike King organized here that Owens himself confirmed this um, snub story being a hoax, saying, no, Adolf Hitler arose and waved at me and uh, treated me very well. He said, I think it was very bad taste to criticize the man of the hour in Germany. Hitler did not snub me. It was Franklin Delano Roosevelt who snubbed me. The president of America didn't even send me a telegram. In fact, he said there was no segregation or any racial discrimination of him in Berlin. But when he got back to America, when he went to one of his own award events in a hotel in New York, he was forced to go in the servants' entrance at the back. He wasn't allowed through the front entrance. So he never experienced racial discrimination in Germany. He experienced it in America, and he didn't get snubbed by Hitler. He got snubbed by FDR. So, as always, the reality often seems to be the opposite of what the popular media story is. But the Berlin Olympics must have really... Uh, 
uh, made it clear to the new world disorder that Germany had to go and all of this high standard needed to be crushed because people around the world would say, well, why don't we have standards of living as high as that of Germany? And so the plan to annihilate Germany with carpet bombing, doubtless, was solidified during August 1936 Olympics. At this time, the Spanish Civil War breaks out. It's a war between the Nationalists and the Reds. And the Nationalist General Franco uh, led a revolt against the Socialist government in Spain, who was completely allied with the Communists. And the war became a proxy war between nationalism and globalism. Germany, Portugal, Italy supported Franco, the Nationalist, and Joseph Stalin and other communists around the world supported the Spanish Socialist Communist side. And the Comintern sent volunteers to fight uh, for the communists in Spain, including American communists who came under the Abraham Lincoln Brigade uh, to fight with the Reds, and they committed hideous atrocities. The communists set fire to wives and children of nationalist officers. Uh, they determined to wipe out Christianity, the raped nuns, they tortured priests, they set fire to churches with worshippers locked inside. There's even pictures of the communists lining up in a firing squad to shoot down statues of Jesus and to execute uh, uh, crucifixes and so on uh, in formal, and they took pictures of it to demonstrate the war against Christianity. And the Spanish Civil War ended in victory for Franco, just as the war uh, between the New World Order globalism and European nationalism was beginning. And so in December the 10th, 1936, the King of England, King Edward VIII, who was a great admirer of Adolf Hitler and a friend of the Germans, was forced to abdicate his throne um, because doubtless he was seen as, as one who would stand in the way of the globalist plan for a war with Germany. And so six months into his reign, there was an assassination attempt against uh, king Edward VIII, Jerome Benningham, produced a loaded revolver near the king, but was pounced on uh, by police and arrested. And he said he was recruited by a foreign power. And uh, next, the Washington Post reported that King Edward of England was planned to marry an American woman who was a divorcee, Mrs. Wallace Simpson. And this was turned into such a scandal that the king was forced to abdicate Interesting, you've got Prince Charles, who's an heir to the throne of England right now, who's not only divorced, but um, married to a divorcee. And that doesn't seem to be excluding him from the throne uh, in the minds of most of the leaders of the country right now. But King Edward VIII was excluded from the throne and forced to abdicate. Well, Adolf Hitler later said, I'm certain that through Edward VIII, permanent friendly relations could have been achieved with England. If he had stayed, everything would have been different. His abdication was a severe loss for all of us. And uh, with Edward gone, um, he was replaced by his brother, George VI, who spent the coming war years making patriotic war speeches on, on air, on radio. May the 6th, 1936, the Hindenburg disaster, which was definitely terrorism. Uh, the Hindenburg had endured direct lightning hits and uh, had never... Um, had an accident or a problem. It was one of the safest forms of travel. But as it docked in Lakehurst, New Jersey, it burst into flames in one of the most memorable images of a disaster because all the press was there. It couldn't have been done better. It wasn't like a problem happened while it was going through a storm over Greenland or over the Atlantic. It, it had to uh, be destroyed. 
um, in front of all the world's media. And this basically ended the airship uh, uh, dominance. And uh, also note, notable that America controlled helium and would not allow helium, which was a safer form of, of um, inflating these uh, dirigibles uh, than hydrogen. But there's a lot of theories like a bomb on board or an incendiary rifle bullet fired from the nearby woods. But whatever uh, it was, this was a great terrorist attack that hurt uh, Germany's airships and marked the end of the airship era. Very suspicious. Well, war broke out between China and Japan in July 1937. And although America's meant to be neutral, they favored China over Japan and uh, on a real sense started to channel a lot of aid to the communist Mao Zedong, who uh, in the end managed to take all of China, even though America was meant to be allied to nationalist China. In fact, her SOE, Special Operations Executive, that's the British, and the OSS of the Americans were aiding Mao Zedong's communist uh, rebels more. 1937, Germany and Japan agreed to an anti-communist defense pact, plainly directed against the Soviet Union, that if uh, if the Soviet Union attacked any one of them, they would support, therefore they could have the Soviet Union from a two-front war, and Japan joined us too. And Germany invited Britain and Poland to join this anti-Comintern alliance against the communists, uh, but both nations declined. Then there were the different attacks that had been made. Interesting, there's a chapter here on the imaginary rape of Nanking in December 1937, where the Japanese took Nanking, and according to the press at the time, there were atrocities committed there, but in fact, the evidence uh, is that there was no such atrocities, and uh, there was no large-scale massacre. There wasn't even a small-scale massacre in the battle for Nanking, because every civilian remaining in the city were urged to take refuge in the internationally monitored safety zone, which was managed by the International Committee for Nanking Safety, but there were some uh, very stirring obviously photoshopped uh, uh, pictures later, which gave the impression of what was called the, the rape of Nanking. And this all helped build anti-Japanese sentiment. Bear in mind, Japan was the largest anti-communist force in Asia. And so interesting, the world media is directing a hate campaign against Germany and Italy, the main anti-communist forces in Europe, and against Japan, the main anti-communist force in Asia, but are being very friendly uh, to Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. So here we get to March 1938, when Austria was incorporated in the German Reich, the Anschluss, a voluntary incorporation, tremendously supported by Austrians and Germans. There was a, a referendums, and the people turned out with obvious joy. There was not a bullet fired. This has turned into something very aggressive and evil in the eyes of the media. But the photographs published near do not give that impression. Bear in mind, Adolf Hitler was born in Austria and it did not look like uh, there was any hostility or opposition to, uh, to Germany and Austria joining in if it uh, was not for some of the media twisting of it. Interestingly, at this time, the uh, head of the British newspapers, Lord Beaverbrook, top media Mongol in Great Britain, his Daily Express is the most widely read newspaper in the world. And during World War I, he had served as Britain's Minister of Information. In a private letter written in 1938, Lord Beaverbrook voiced concerns 
over the Jewish influence leading Britain to war with Germany. He wrote, there are 20,000 German Jews in England, in the professions, pursuing research, and all are working against any kind of accommodation with Germany. And he added, the Jews have got a big position in the press here. At last, I am shaken. The Jews may drive us into war. Well, that's what Lord Beaverbrook said in private letters, which were published later. March 1938, uh, Poland's Marshal Reeds Smidley issued an ultimatum to the tiny Baltic state of Lithuania, which had refused to have diplomatic relations with Poland after 1920 because Poland had annexed the villainous region uh, to uh, Poland, which was part of Lithuania. And because of this military aggression, Lithuania was not willing to recognize Poland. And so now Poland gives them a 48-hour ultimatum and uh, threatens to invade. And so tiny Lithuania preferred peace to war and accept the bully boy Smigli's ultimatum and conditions and lost more territory. And uh, if Lithuania had stood firm, it's quite possible um, that that would have led to a second Polish-Soviet war right then. This is the kind of recklessness of Marshal Rids Smigli of Poland. Well, many in the democratic West, uh, including New York Times, expressed dismay over Poland's militaristic bullying of Lithuania and aggression, uh, but that was forgotten a few months later when suddenly Poland became uh, the, the victim of Germany. So when the Treaty of Versailles dismantled Austria-Hungary, it combined Czechs, Slovaks, Germans, Hungarians into an artificial state called Czechoslovakia, including over 3 million Germans in the Sudeten region, which had always been German. 3.5 million Germans included into uh, the control of the Czech Republic, which in fact, at that stage, the Czechs were a minority in the country that they ruled. And uh, the pro-communist president, Edward Benes, um, uh, made all kinds of problems, made the life of the Sudeten people miserable. And so this led to almost a war between Germany and Czechoslovakia. But because of Neville Chamberlain coming and negotiating peace in our time, uh, Germany was given Sudetenland, which was 90-something percent German anyway, it prevented war. And this uh, was something that people were very happy for. And there's a lot of pictures of very happy uh, Czech people receiving the Germans coming into Sudetenland. But it's been turned into a myth now of real aggression uh, with hindsight, uh, the way how the victors write, write the story. What is left out of most history books today is how Poland occupied a part of Czech territory in October 1938. They went in when Germany took Sudetenland uh, the Poles decided to go in and swipe up an area. They annexed a population of over 220,000 uh, people, uh, made it part of Poland. There's a picture of Polish tanks rolling into the uh, area there of what had been Czechoslovakia. Kristallnacht, 1938, 9th of November. Ernst von Roth, a 29-year-old German diplomat stationed in Paris, was murdered by a Polish-Jewish terrorist, Herzl, Greenspan. And Herzl Greenspan arrived at the German embassy in Paris, asked to speak to a member of the diplomatic staff, and von Roth came to greet him. Greenspan drew his pistol and murdered him in cold blood. Well, this terrorism led to boycotts and attacks uh, on Jewish businesses, what is called Night of the Broken Glass um, by the West media. And uh, this was the final straw with all the boycotts and agitation and murders 
from the Jewish terrorists against Germany. And so this uh, was a popular uprising. And when Adolf Hitler heard of it, he issued immediate orders to stop and to provide every police protection for Jewish shops that this is playing into the hands of the enemy. We should not be doing this. Although, of course, a lot of those facts are left out, especially the context that was a Jewish murder uh, terrorist attack on a German diplomat in Paris that led to this uh, infamous Kristallnacht. H.G. Wells publishes The New World Order, book uh, 1939, and he says the new complete revolution we contemplate can be defined in a very few words. It's outright world socialism, scientifically planned and directed. Countless people will hate this new world order and will die protesting against it. When we attempt to evaluate its promise, we have to bear in mind the distress of a generation or so of malcontents. The term internationalism has been popularized in recent years to cover an interlocking financial, political, and economic world force for the purpose of establishing world government. And H.G. Wells admitted, well, countless people will die, but it's for the good of the world. And so now we see in 1939, Adolf Hitler's attempting to peacefully resolve the dispute over the Polish corridor where the free city of Danzig, 95% German, is uh, outside of the German Reich and it's surrounded by Poland and it's part of the Polish uh, corridor, which prevents Germany being linked to East Prussia, which had always been uh, together. And so Danzig's isolated from the German mainland by the Versailles Treaty. And it apparently belongs to Poland, this, this region, what's called the Danzig Corridor. And so he's trying to resolve this problem, making very generous promises uh, through to uh, Poland if they will hand it over. But the Polish military dictatorship of Edward Reitz Smigli and his friends are urged by Britain and from behind the scenes by Franklin Delano Roosevelt not to give any concessions to Germany. And Poland is put up to resisting and it, it made no sense. Poland would only suffer as a result of the intransigence of refusing to hand back territory, which was over 90% German, back to Germany, reversing the injustice of the Versailles Treaty. And so the globalists intended to use this foolish leader, Rydz Smigli of Poland, for the match that ignites World War II. And that's been well documented by President Herbert Hoover in his excellent book, Freedom Betrayed. And so... Germany turned to the Vatican for peace, and Britain appealed to Stalin for war lines against Germany. The Hawks in Britain were threatening to dump Neville Chamberlain if he refused to go to war. Neville Chamberlain was deeply distressed and did not want to go to war with Germany. And in fact, Britain is doing everything they can to make a treaty with the Soviet Union so that they can wage a war against Germany. And at this point, even with the Pope calling for peace and for many different attempts to to uh, prevent this war, uh, we have, uh, as was said by by uh, Chamberlain, uh, Neville Chamberlain said that he was put under pressure. He said to the American ambassador, Joseph Kennedy, America and world Jews had forced England into war. And uh, that was what Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister of Britain, uh, said to the American ambassador, Joseph Kennedy. And at this point, Germany's trying to have a non-aggression pact with Poland, but Poland wants nothing to do with that. And at this point, with Britain campaigning for war against Germany and France, giving a, a war guarantee to Poland and Britain giving a war guarantee to Poland and America promising all kinds of money and support from behind the scenes, it's been exposed more recently. We have the ridiculous situation where Britain, for the first time in its history, 
gave a war guarantee to a country. Now, Poland had never been Britain's ally before 1939. Poland had not asked for such an alliance. Britain asked nothing in return. It's the only time in history Britain gave a war guarantee to any country, and it was uh, it was a unilateral war guarantee. It guaranteed war, and it did not make sense. And at this very time, a Jewish scientist, Albert Einstein, left Germany, and he went uh, to America, and he started to initiate um, what is called the Manhattan Project uh, to bring about atomic bombs in America. And so that's an intriguing um, story. And Einstein wrote, due to their wretched traditions, the Germans are such a badly messed up people that it'll be very difficult to remedy the situation by sensible, not to speak of humane means. I keep hoping that at the end of the war, with God's benevolent help, they will largely kill one another off. Uh, that's not a quote from Albert Einstein you normally come across. But Neville Chamberlain is now uh, maneuvered by his own parliament and opposition, led by Winston Churchill, to giving this war guarantee to Poland. And Germany knows this is extremely dangerous. You can't afford a war on two fronts. That's how Germany lost the First World War. They must keep Russia and Britain from uniting against them because they would be caught in a vice again. And therefore, without any natural boundaries, Germany would be encircled. And so like Bismarck behind her, before him, Hitler attempted to neutralize the threat from Russia by the so-called Molotov-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact. He understood what a monster Stalin was, but he hoped if he could keep the peace for the Soviet Union, then the scheming warmongers of Britain and France and America could be prevented from drawing the Soviet Union into war against Germany. Now, the Western Globes were shocked and very annoyed when Hitler accepted this uh, uh, non-aggression tract, but it's not that Stalin had uh, any um, good feelings towards Germany. It's that he had his own time, his own plans, his own timetable, and he wasn't ready to fight Germany yet. He was hoping that Germany and the British and French would weaken one another, and then the Red Army could be built up to take all of Europe from the um, the weakened allies once they had fought one another out. And so Adolf Hitler and Stalin agree on a non-aggression pact for 10 years, and the way is open for the military gamble that leads to the Second World War, the Polish campaign. So we've come to the end of part four of The Bad War by ML King. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, fascinating information as always. Um, we're out of time, so before we go, can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Yes, my email is peter at frontline.org.za. Peter at frontline.org.za, as Americans would say. Uh, and our website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Frontlinemissionsa.org. And you'll also find me on social media if you're on Facebook and so on, Frontline Fellowship or Peter Hammond. Look for us there. Uh, look forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Wonderful information as always. And uh, folks, you have been listening to The Real Story Behind the Bad War by MS King Part 4. Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I'll, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, I hope you have a wonderful day. And bye for now.